Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, the rest of you can open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 9. We are working our way through the book of Romans here at New Life, just taking one passage at a time. And uh, one of the things that comes with the territory and when, when you go through a, a book of the Bible is that you have to deal with whatever comes up next. And we got to deal now with Romans 9. Uh, if some of you are familiar with the book of Romans, you might know that this is uh, it's a difficult chapter with some uh, troubling teachings. A couple of Sundays ago, we looked at the doctrine of predestination. Uh, that was on Palm Sunday, actually, because we were at the end of Romans chapter 8. We looked at verses 28 through 30 that talked about predestination. And some of you might have thought, wow, thank goodness that's over. Now we can get on to bigger and better things, but now we, here we get to chapter 9, and we find out that Paul is not done with his topic of the sovereignty of God, and in fact, he turns up the volume. He turns it up to 11, so to speak. Not too many Spinal Tap fans here, apparently. Paul turns up the volume on this issue of the sovereignty of God. Um, so that's what we're talking about here today. Now, what um, the word that Paul uses to refer to this in this passage is the word election. Um, at the end of chapter 8, he used the word predestination. And those words are largely the same, so I don't want you to be confused by that as you see Paul refer to the word election here in chapter 9. I think there is a slight difference. Predestination is probably a little broader. It has to do with God's sovereignty over all events. Election has more to do with God's sovereignty in salvation, but um, largely uh, the same thing. And uh, what I want to do before I get into this text is just give you a couple of preliminary remarks before we begin this. And the first thing is this. If you were here a few Sundays ago and you heard the doctrine of predestination presented here and it was something that was troubling to you and difficult and, and maybe you didn't accept what was presented um, you might feel the same way today, and I just want you to know that, that you're welcome here at New Life whether you accept the particular interpretation of election that is presented here or not. Um, I really don't want anybody leaving here thinking, well, I don't agree with Pastor Bob on that, so that must not be the church for me, or there must be no place for me in that church. There is a place for you here, and we welcome dissenting opinions and we are happy to learn from each other. As the proverb says, iron sharpens iron. And so don't feel like you're not welcome here if the view presented is not what you're used to or what you agree with. But I do wanna say this, secondly, I am seeking to persuade you this morning, okay? Um, I could present the different views on this topic and say I'll just leave it up to you to decide for yourself, but I'm not gonna do that. Um, I believe the Bible is pretty clear on this issue, and there is no passage in the Bible other than Romans 9 that is so clear on how it is that God works out his electing and predestining purposes. 
In this chapter, I think it's about as clear uh, as we can get. And so, um, I'm not making apologies for presenting to you this particular view. I think it's good for you. Uh, the truth of the Word of God, whether we like it or not, is good for our souls and good for our hearts. And so, that's what I'm seeking to do. And then thirdly, I just want to say this. My challenge to you is this. As we look at this passage, to lay aside, as best as you can, your preconceptions about the doctrine of election or predestination, to just set those things to the side and allow this text to speak for itself. Just take this at face value. Pretend you haven't heard anything about this issue and allow yourself to be driven by the argument and the logic that Paul puts forward here uh, in this passage. So that maybe at the end of this sermon, we could all together say, you know what, I might not like this, but in humility, I accept this because it is the teaching of God's word. And so that's the title of my sermon, actually, The Humbling Doctrine of Election. I'm not sure that there is any doctrine quite so humbling as this one. Uh, and I, I was, one last thing I want to say is that there's no way that I can say everything that needs to be said on this topic. Uh, I would recommend that you go back a couple of Sundays ago, listen to the sermon on predestination. It was called The Good Doctrine of Predestination. Um, on our website, if you go to sermons, you should find that pretty easily. In that sermon, some things were said that I might not have time to say today. And in fact, even after today, we're not quite done because Paul goes on in the rest of chapter 9 to explore this issue further. And so we will take on either uh, even more implications of this doctrine in two weeks. Next Sunday, actually, Pastor Brian will be preaching. So it'll be two weeks from today where we'll pick up in verse 14 of chapter 9. But today we're reading verses 1 through 13. So let's stand out of respect for the reading of God's Word. And let me read this passage to us, Romans 9, 1 through 13. Paul says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because 
of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Lord, we are in great need, as we always are, as we approach your word, perhaps more so this morning, in need of your spirit, in need of understanding, in need of direction and guidance, that we might receive your truth humbly and in faith, and that we might rejoice in all that you've done for us in your eternal and unending grace for sinners like us. Bless the preaching of your word now in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Three things that I want to show you here as we just kind of follow Paul's argument in these first 13 verses. There's a complication. There's going to be an explanation. And then lastly, some implications of this doctrine of election. So first of all, there's a complication, a problem that faces Paul that leads him to say these things that he has here in chapter 9. And the problem actually goes back to the end of chapter 8. And again, it's always important when we read the scriptures that we read them in context. And we look at one chapter, we got to assume that he's saying this here because of what he'd been saying previously. And in chapter 8, as I've already alluded to, Paul made this um, very clear declaration that God had predestined a certain people to be saved, and those he had predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. And then he went on at the end of chapter 8 to talk about this love of God that we cannot be separated from, this most powerful force in all the universe. That's what we heard about last week on Easter Sunday. And it's like Paul, as he begins chapter 9, is anticipating a question. Okay, God is predestined. He's called these certain people. He won't give up on these people. He's committed to them for all eternity. And he anticipates that somebody might ask this question. What about the Jews? Didn't God call them? He did, didn't he? In the Old Testament, that's what we see. God called the nation of Israel to be his people. But Paul knows and we know that so many in the nation of Israel, so many Jews rejected Jesus. They did not accept Jesus as Messiah. They didn't receive him as Savior. So how is it that God called the nation of Israel and yet not all of them came to faith? That's the complication. That's the problem. And that problem is made more troublesome, more difficult when you look at verse 4. Paul's explaining what is true about the Israelites. They are Israelites, and to them belong. And now he lists all of these incredible privileges that have been given to this nation of Israel. To them belong the adoption. That is, in Exodus, Israel is called the Son of God. The glory. We read many times about the glory of God filling the tabernacle and the temple. They were given the covenants covenant with Abraham, Moses, and David. They were given the law. God met with Moses on Mount Sinai and gave him the, the, the law. Uh, the worship, directions in the Old Testament for how God's people should worship, and the promises, most specifically, the promise of a coming Messiah. All of these things were given specifically to Israel, not to every nation, but only to them. And he goes on in verse 5, to them also belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And from their race, from this particular nation, came Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. It's like Paul just can't contain himself. He's just so filled with joy as he talks about the coming Messiah and who Jesus is, God in the flesh. And he says, amen. Very strong text on the divinity of Jesus here, by the way, which I wish we could spend time unpacking a little bit, but uh, we need to move on. So here's what Paul is, is troubled by. This is the complication. This is the trouble. How is it that a nation who had been given so many blessings rejected Jesus, but the Gentiles who didn't receive those same kind of privileges largely came to Jesus? How does that work? Why is that? That's a complication. Now, the explanation in point two that I'll get to in a moment, Paul fleshes that out. But I, I want to jump to a little bit of a tangent, I guess, and explore the way this has affected Paul personally. And we see this in the first couple of verses here in chapter 9. Paul's response, Paul is coming to grips with, with this knowledge that there are fellow Jews, fellow countrymen who have heard that the Messiah has come and they've rejected that Messiah. And in Paul's mind, what he knows that means is that they will perish, that they will go to hell. Paul, Paul knows that. And that's why he begins this chapter. Look what he says in verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience <clears throat> bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He's overwhelmed. He's grieved. He's so troubled by this thought that my fellow Israelites are going to perish apart from Christ. And you see how he refers to them at the end of verse 3. He, talks, he says, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Do you see that phrase at the end of verse 3? What he's saying is they're my kinsmen according to the flesh. Racially, ethnically, they're my brothers, my kinsmen. But spiritually, they're not because they haven't received Jesus as Savior. They've rejected the Messiah. And so Paul's response is to be grieved. And in fact, this is affecting him so much. Look what he offers to do at the start of verse 3. He says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and my kinsmen. He's saying, I love my fellow countrymen so much and I want them to know Jesus so bad that I think I might be willing to go to hell myself so that they could go to heaven. That's what he's saying. And you've got to think that Paul is just, that his thinking here is so influenced and saturated by the gospel. This itself is a picture of the gospel, isn't it? Because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He came and substituted himself for us, took upon himself the wrath of God so that we could go free. And that's what Paul's been talking about in Romans. And now Paul kind of thinks, you know, I kind of wish I could do that myself because I love the law so much. I want so badly to see people come to know Jesus and go to heaven. And so it raises a question for us, friends, and that is, what is your response 
to the fact that there are fellow countrymen, kinsmen, people in our country, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and in our families who don't know Jesus and are at this moment anyway on their way to hell. What is your response to that? Are you moved at all by that fact? Or are you apathetic? Are you indifferent? Maybe you resent people who aren't Christians, because what you're thinking is, hey, the gospel's presented to me, I believed it, they've heard the gospel, why don't they believe it? If they don't believe it, it's their fault. If they go to hell, good riddance, it's their problem. You know, it's very easy for Christians to just develop this kind of resentment for people who are not Christians. We just kind of hold it against them. That is not Paul's attitude. He does not resent his fellow kinsmen who have rejected Jesus. There's a story of George Whitfield. I mention him a lot. He was a great evangelist in the 1700s from Britain, but preached a lot in America. And it was said that very often while he was preaching, he would just be overcome emotionally. And he'd just weep. And the people listening to him wondered if he would ever regain his composure. And that's how out of control it was. And he always did, and he got back on, on, uh, on to what he was going to say. But some people who were very cynical about George Whitfield said, yeah, he's just putting it on. You know, it's just a fake thing to put on a show. But apparently after Whitfield would preach, he would go home and throw up. And sometimes would throw up blood. Now, we don't know the reasons for that. It could have been a health ailment of some sort. But it could also be, and in particular given the emotional response that he had while preaching, that he was just so overcome with unceasing anguish and sorrow, just like Paul, at the prospect that there were people out there rejecting the good news of Jesus and insisting on going to hell. I have a, a sheet of paper right in front of my desk when I prepare my sermons. It's got some quotes about preaching to remind myself of what I'm doing up here on Sunday mornings. And one of the quotes says, to love to preach is one thing, but to love those to whom we preach is quite another. And Paul was a man driven to preach the gospel, but it's very clear that he has a love for people. He wants people to be saved. This is what's driving him. So whatever we say about election today and predestination, don't forget these first few verses of chapter 9. Whatever we think about election and predestination, it is no excuse for us to become indifferent and apathetic about the plight of the lost among us. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, friends, why we as a congregation are planting a church that we're sending out Josh Hollowell and his family to plant a congregation because I know he shares this burden, and the leadership of this church shares this burden too. There are people going to hell in this community, and one of the ways that the gospel goes forth is when local congregations are planted and communities are saturated with gospel-preaching churches. And so, if you ever ask, why are we planning a church, read the first few verses of chapter 9 and remind yourself of why it is worth it to give ourselves to an evangelistic task like this, okay? So that's the complication. Now, here's what Luther said about Paul 
It seems incredible that a man would de desire to be damned in order that the damned might be saved. <laughs> that summarizes Paul's attitude here in the first couple of verses. So now there's an explanation. So we still have this complication. This um, question, what about the Jews? They were called, but not all of them are saved. So what's happened here? Has the word of God failed? The promise that God made to the Jews, did that fail? And you see in verse 6 that Paul, he doesn't really ask it as a question. He, he kind of forms the answer. He says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. So, you know, he's, he hasn't written the question, but he's responding to that. He's just giving the answer because he knows that's what his questioners are thinking. If the Jews aren't saved, has God's promise failed? And he says, no, that hasn't happened. And he goes on to explain. He says, for, I'm in verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So what does that mean? It's kind of an odd way to phrase something. I think what Paul means here is that being a Jew does not necessarily mean that a person is saved. He mentions Israel twice here, descended from Israel, belong to Israel. I think he has in mind racial Israel and spiritual Israel. Not all who descended from racial Israel belong to spiritual Israel. Not every member of the people of God is actually a Christian. In the Old Testament, just because a person was a Jew didn't mean that that person had a relationship with God. And so today, it's similar. Just because you have membership in a church doesn't mean you have relationship with God. Just because you consider yourself part of a Christian community doesn't mean that you have relationship with God. There's something deeper that is, <clears throat> that is necessary. And Paul already said this, you might remember, back in chapter 2, so we actually gave this some extended treatment several weeks ago, but Paul said this in Romans 2, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. That's the spiritual Israel that Paul is talking about. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. People come to church, they think, I'll get on the membership rolls, I'll get baptized, I'll do whatever the pastor says, and I'll go to heaven. Paul says, no, that's not necessarily true. Personal relationship with Christ through faith, that is what is necessary. Sometimes people miss that. So, not everybody in Israel belongs to God. And then Paul goes and he gives two examples of this. So, you're going to have to follow with me here because it's... A lot of details here that Paul gives in these next few verses. But two examples he uses from the Old Testament to explain this idea that not everyone in Israel is a believer. First of all, Isaac and Ishmael. And he talks about this in verses 7 through 9 in chapter 9. And probably many of you know about the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis. <clears throat> God came to Abraham, promised that Abraham and his wife Sarah would have a son, and that didn't happen. A lot of years passed, no child. So Abraham decides he'll have relations with Hagar, another woman. Sleeps with Hagar, and from that relationship comes a son named Ishmael. Ishmael, a Jew, circumcised, 
Israelite. But the point that Paul's making here is that Ishmael is not a child of the promise. And so, if you look at verse 9, you might say, well, what, what promise are you talking about? Verse 9, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So that's a promise from God to Abraham and Sarah. But it's a promise to Sarah. It's not a promise to Hagar. So the child, Ishmael, born from Abraham and Hagar, is not the child of the promise. The child of the promise is Isaac. And so you see that this is mentioned, I think, in uh, verse 7. Not all children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So what Paul is saying here is that there is a distinction within the nation of Israel. There are two groups. One group is, a, is uh, from the promise, and another group is not. One group is connected to Isaac, and the other group is connected to Ishmael. And it's only the children of the promise that are true spiritual Israelites who belong to God. And so this is one of Paul's explanations. So here's how he would answer the question. How is it that God could call Israel and yet some of them not be saved? His answer is because God never intended to save all of them. He only intended to save the children of the promise who came from the line of Isaac. Okay, so that's, that's Paul's first explanation in answer to the question. Isaac and Ishmael. But then he gives another. And again, here he is, turning up the volume a little bit. He refers to Jacob and Esau in verses 10 through 13. Now, who are Jacob and Esau? They, as we've already heard from Genesis 25, as Eric read to us earlier, they were brothers born to Isaac and Isaac's wife, Rebekah. And as we get to verses 11 and 12, I want you to look real carefully here, because here is where Paul is emphasizing the sovereignty of God in choosing whomever he wishes. Look what it says. Jacob and Esau, brothers, verse 12. She was told, it's referring to Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. Now the younger in this case would have been Jacob, the older would have been Esau. And most readers would be surprised to hear this. The older will serve the younger. We would expect the younger to serve the older. That's the way it worked in Jewish culture at the time. But God comes into this situation and says, nope, the younger will serve the older. Esau is going to serve Jacob, even though it ought to be the other way around. Because God reserves the right to do that. But Go one more verse to verse 13, and he explains even more why this is how God did it. Because, as it is written, I love Jacob, and I hated Esau. Now, that's, that's a hard verse to hear, isn't it? Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Is this saying that, God, that God's heart was filled with hostility and hatred toward Esau? Let's take a moment and, and think about this. I don't think that this means a literal hatred. And that's because if we go back or go forward actually to the New Testament, in Luke chapter 14, we see another example where the word hatred is used. 
This is Jesus speaking, and he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So what does Jesus mean here? Does he mean that one of the duties of the Christian is to hate mom and dad? I don't think so, because the Bible very clearly says we're to honor our parents. What Jesus is doing here is he's using a form of speech to impress upon us how important it is for our allegiance to Jesus to exceed our allegiance to anyone or anything else in this world. First and foremost, we are devoted to Jesus. And I think what Jesus has in mind here is that devotion should be so strong that by comparison, it would almost seem like we hated our mother and father, but of course we don't. It's just that we love Jesus so much that our affection for other allegiances is less. So a simple way to put it is this. I think what Jesus is saying is you need to prefer me to all other relationships. I deserve first preference. And so if we take that understanding of the word hate and use it to understand verse 13 in Romans 9, I think what is being said here is as it is written, Jacob I preferred, but Esau I did not prefer. Jacob I chose, but Esau I didn't chose. I gave myself to Jacob, but I didn't give myself to Esau. I think that's what he's saying. Not a literal hatred, but a preference. Okay? But now we still have this question. Why? Why did God prefer Jacob over Esau? And now here's where we begin to think. Well, certainly it was because Jacob did something that Esau didn't. Certainly it was because God knew what Jacob was going to do and knew what Esau was going to do, and he saw that Jacob was going to do the right thing, so now he preferred Jacob and didn't prefer Esau. But I don't think that's the right interpretation, and I think Paul goes a long way here in verse 11 and 12 to disprove that. It's interesting, isn't it, that he uses Jacob and Esau in his explanation of this, two guys who were twins, wombmates, who had so much in common biologically that there wouldn't be really anything that would cause God to choose one or the other. They were twins. And not only that, they had the same mother and Paul makes that point in verse 10, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. I think Paul is saying that in contrast to Isaac and Ishmael. You might remember Isaac's mother was Sarah, Ishmael's mother was Hagar. So if Paul had used Isaac and Ishmael as an example of election, we could say, well, God chose Isaac because of Sarah, but not with Jacob and Esau because they had the same mother. And they had the same father. And then we might say, well, certainly it has something to do with what God knew they were going to do in their lives. And that's where we see verse 11, and this is the clincher. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. And then if you skip down to verse 12, she was told the older will serve the younger. That, that's how that's connected if you kind of go past the dash there at the end of verse 11 or middle of verse 11. 
It was before they had done anything good or bad that God went to Rebecca and said, the older will serve the younger. It was before God had considered anything that they were going to do. So, what, what, what's the reason then? Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? And, and there it is, again in verse 11, after the dash. There's a dash in my translation anyway. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, dash, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. That, that's why. That's why God chose Jacob and not Esau. Not so that Jacob's morality or Jacob's free will or Jacob's spiritual inclinations could be showcased before the world, but so that God's sovereign, gracious, eternal purpose in electing whomever he wishes could stand before all of humanity so that we would marvel at his sovereignty and bow down and worship him. That, that's, that's what Paul is saying. I, I just, I don't see how you can say election is based on what God knows that we're going to do when you have this passage in your Bible. So that's Paul's explanation. So, <clears throat> implications. Three quick things. Implications of this. Doctrine of election. God choosing, not on the base of, basis of anything that we're doing, or will do, or haven't done, but freely by His grace. First thing is this, election, friends, is not unjust, because I know that's what's going through all your minds. This doesn't seem fair. Well, you're thinking, if that's what you're thinking, you're thinking exactly along the lines of the Apostle Paul. So be encouraged by that. Verse 14, look what he says. What shall we say then? Is there injustice? <laughs> so Paul is expecting, people are going to think this isn't fair. And so, again, we're going to pick up on verse 14 and continue in two Sundays. But let me say this. We'll see how Paul answers that, and I think this is a biblical way to answer this, would be to, to say, that let me just use by, by way of illustration to, to show why election is not unjust. Let's say there's five bank robbers, and they are committed to robbing a bank, and you go to them and you say, you better not do that. Don't do it. You'll get in trouble. It's wrong. And... They spurn your advice, they start heading for the bank, and you run after one of them, you dive after them, you tackle the guy to the ground, you bring him down, and you keep him from robbing that bank. The other four, they go, they rob the bank, they shoot a guard, they kill him, they get caught, they get convicted, and they all go to prison. But that one person who you tackled doesn't go to prison. Is there any injustice in that? Is there any injustice that those four who willingly went to rob the bank got punished? If there's any injustice there, it's that that person that got tackled when he was intending fully to go rob the bank got saved. That's what the doctrine of election is teaching us, is that it's not that God would choose some. The thing that ought to surprise us, the thing that ought to cause us to marvel is that God would choose any, that God would elect any of us. The fact that we complain about this shows that we don't really understand how desperately wicked our spiritual condition is apart from Christ. That He saves any is a wonderful display of His grace. Election is not unjust. Secondly, election is profoundly 
humbling. It's profoundly humbling. Here's a frequent charge against Christians. You guys are so holier than thou. You guys think you're so much better than other people. You, you guys think atheists and Muslims are so wicked and mean, and you think you guys are the only ones who have a corner on morality. We get accused of that a lot. And in many cases, rightfully so. Here is the only doctrine that's going to cure us of that. Election will cure us of that tendency. Because we can't say now, I believed in Jesus because I was more spiritual, or I was more humble, or I was more open-minded. I made better decisions. I have a better heart. I made better use of my free will. I mean, whatever it is. If that's ultimately why you're saying you believed in Jesus, don't you see how what you're doing is pointing to something in you, something inside you? Even though it's a tiny little bit of thing, it might be just a fraction of the whole salvation process, but if you're clinging to that one little thing, it's a launching pad for you to say, I'm good and that person's bad. I am morally superior to these other people because of what I did. What election says is, it is all of God's grace from top to bottom, from A to Z, from start to finish. The reason God chose you is not because of something in you, it's because of something in Him. Eternal, loving grace and His intention to save sinners. John Stott says this, if anybody is lost, the blame is theirs, but if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. And man, that's humbling, isn't it? That's humbling. Christians ought to be the most humble people on the earth largely because of the doctrine of election. Last thing, election means God can save anybody. God can save anybody he desires to save. The most hardened criminal, the most violent terrorist, the most cynical atheist, it is no problem for God to save that person. He can save your husband, he can save your wife, he can save your son, he can save your daughter. He can save your roommate from college. He can save your brother or your sister. He can save the person who's been defying God for 45 years. If that person's salvation is locked up in the eternal love of God, there is nothing that's going to save that person from being saved. So, we need to stop. Um, my charge, I, I, just, I have to conclude by just saying this. Here's my charge, and it was the same way I concluded the Sermon on Predestination, because some of you might be thinking and, and asking this question, how do I know if I'm elect? What if I'm not elect? And, and I just want to encourage you, friends. It is God's responsibility to elect. It is your responsibility to repent and believe in Jesus. You turn from your sin and receive Jesus as Savior, you can have assurance that you are saved, that you're a Christian, that your sins are forgiven, because that's what elect people do. Your job is not to figure out God's eternal decree. Your job is to respond to the offer of the gospel and receive Jesus. So if you haven't done that, do it today. We're going to conclude with a song called All to Jesus I Surrender. I just think it's really appropriate to sing that song. All to Jesus I Surrender. All credit, all boasting, 
all glory that I would want to take for myself, I surrender it all to him. So band, if you want to come forward, we'll get ready to sing. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that your word um, is, although sometimes challenging and troubling, we believe it is the truth. And so God, would you please fill our hearts not with anxiety or worry about these things, but that we would respond rejoicing, God, in your sovereign love from before the foundation of the world to save us sinners. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you, Jesus, and desire to sing your glory now. In your name we pray. Amen.